Good morning. We're starting over. It's good to be together. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying a few things about where we're going to be over the next uh, few months. Give you a little roadmap. How many of you are schedulers? How many of you are schedulers? I'm a scheduler. I like to know sort of the roadmap, the plan, what we're doing today, what we're doing tomorrow, what's happening next week. I'm not a big fan of surprises. Uh, anyone else like that? So if you, uh, if you'd like to know what's going on, here's our little plan for now. Uh, we started last week in the book of Acts, uh, read chapter one. We're gonna spend a few, uh, maybe five Sundays in the book of Acts, uh, going through, uh, what it means to be church, what the early church looked like, uh, what it means to participate in the church, kind of use that as a model for our church life together. After that, during Lent, uh, the five or six weeks of Lent, we're gonna finish up the book of Mark. Yes, we're gonna do it. And then, uh, and after that, for about five or six weeks, we're going to talk about our value number one, our first value, loving all people unconditionally, and kind of dig deep into that together. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. Now to the book of Acts. Acts is volume two, as we said last week, of, uh, of a two-volume set by the gospel writer Luke. So Luke uh, is his volume one. The book of Acts is his volume two. Last Sunday morning, we read Acts chapter 1, the whole thing, and talked about it, what, what it means to be the nascent church. Not the baby church, not the infant church, not the immature church, just the earliest stages of church uh, for them. Uh, we lifted out of that first chapter of the book of Acts four points, four characteristics that we saw in the nat- nascent church, and we said uh, these things about it. The nascent church, one, paid attention to the teaching of Jesus and specifically what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. Number two, received and welcomed God's empowering presence or the Holy Spirit. Three, uh, we saw that the early church or the nascent church prayed constantly, not meaning that 24-7 their heads were bowed, their hands were clasped, and their eyes were closed, but they lived in a regular uh, disposition of prayer. Prayer was just a regular, regular part of their life together. And then fourth and finally, they bore witness to what they had seen, heard, and experienced of Jesus. And you remember the word witness in Greek is martus, from which we get the word martyr, all sort of wedded together. So they paid attention to the teaching of Jesus, specifically what he said about the kingdom of God. They received God's empowering presence or the Holy Spirit. They prayed constantly and they bore witness to the things that they'd seen, heard, and experienced in and about the Lord Jesus. Uh, that's how we began. Uh, that's not how things stayed, though, with the early church. Uh, God gave the 12 apostles, formerly disciples. Apostles means sent ones. He gave to them and to this group of men and women around them a purpose and a mission. And to provide sort of a 30,000 foot simplification uh, view of that purpose or mission, uh, we quoted last week Dallas Willard. Here again are his words. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. Once again, God's aim in human history, which he intends to carry out through his church and his people, is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. God had a mission and a purpose for the early church, and God would help the apostles with that mission for his church. We'll see how that goes in chapter 2 of Acts. First, uh, pray with me.
God, we've sung, we've listened, we have uh, prayed, we're gathered, uh, not because we have to be, but because we want to be, not because we love this building as much as we love you, and we need you. And so we ask that you would help us, that you would come to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would transform us, that you would remake us, that you would be at work in us, particularly through your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. In the name and the character of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So listen closely now as we read from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, so I'm going to stop a little bit along the way here. Pentecost uh, means 50. It's 50 days after the latter Sabbath of Passover. So about 50 days after Jesus uh, was in that upper room with his disciples. Uh, they were all together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And the day is most likely Jesus and or not Jesus, but his 12 disciples and a few men and women with him. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. My mom used to tell us as kids, we lived in Texas, tornadoes came through all the time. She used to tell us about a time when she was in high school, when a, a tornado came through, uh, and she said it was like a freight train just ramming right down the side of her house, just literally a violent noise that scared them all to death. Suddenly a, va- va- suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So they hear and then they see. They hear the violent wind or the sound, then they see what appear to be like tongues of fire. Like, not exactly, but like and reminded them of tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on or above each of them. Fire in the scriptures is symbolic of the presence of God and the power of God. Think of Moses and the burning bush, his first encounter with God, next to God interacting with God, it's fire. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, as the Spirit enabled them. God's enabling presence, God's empowering presence, as we spoke of last week from Gordon Fee. But notice this, the the word translated tongues is glosso in Greek. And here it's translated tongues. It's the second time it occurs in Acts chapter 2. And the first time it has to be translated as tongue because its other equal translation is language. And you can't see a language above someone's head in the form of fire, can you? You can't see a language. So the first time it's used, it's translated as tongue. The translators here also continue to translate it tongue, but it has the real meaning here of language. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5. Now they were staying in, Jer- they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that we each hear them in our own language? And it's curious to me, aren't all of these Galileans? How did they know they were Galileans? Uh, no one's wearing a Galilean tag. No one's got a passport. No one's got a COVID uh, passport or vaccination card saying, I'm from Galilee. Maybe it was their accent. Maybe it was the way they dressed. Uh, maybe it's just they noticed that these guys really don't seem to have a lot going on uh, in their um, minds. Or they weren't as intelligent. And so how could they be speaking all of these other languages? Which reminds me, how do you know someone's from East Texas? Well, because of their accent, which is so deep that you could carry it with a bucket. <laughs> or that they're not wearing Levi's, they're wearing what? Wranglers. Who said that? You've been to East Texas? Sure. The And this is a little off off base. But how can you know that someone is from East Texas? How do you know a Texan is from East Texas? The tobacco juice drips equally from both sides of their mouth. <laughs> Disgusting. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? And they also know that the Galileans mostly probably knew one language. Not a cosmopolitan bunch. You stand outside of my house and the people walk by are from dozens of countries around the world. You go to East Texas and you'll hear one language that even there they can barely speak. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our, their, our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans uh, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And everyone can pick up, that's what we pick up, our own language. Again, it's not tongue so much as language, glosso. And we can pick up here, our, if you're in a crowded restaurant, for example, and lots of people are talking, and there might be one topic, if someone starts talking about the 49ers, that you can sort of pick up on that and hear that, hear what's going on. Similarly, if everyone's talking different languages, but one person's speaking in English, you, if you're a native English speaker, will hear and pick up that. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, are our own languages, glosso. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And this is one of those places where we just read over it, but if we think about it for a moment, we see that Luke is being very honest, isn't he? He doesn't have to put that in there. He can just go on with his narrative. But instead, he notes that people thought these guys were a little bit crazy or drunk or inebriated or off kilter. He's very honest about that, that some people looked down their noses or looked derogatorily at the disciples. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, 
And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Maybe if it had been nine in the evening, they might have been drunk. We don't know. These people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Joel's this Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets, not because he's not important, but because his prophecy is short, only three chapters in our Bible. We don't know exactly when Joel prophesied, somewhere between the 900s and maybe the 600s B.C. And this is an important quote from the middle or the second chapter of Joel. This is what was spoken. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy or speak God's word. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy or speak God's word. It's pretty inclusive, this group of people. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness. Reminiscent of Jesus' crucifixion, maybe. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So fellow Israelites, Peter continues, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs over the course of his public ministry, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This was common knowledge throughout Palestine. All the things that Jesus did, all the things that people that Jesus healed, all the people Jesus healed. This man, verse 23, was handed over to you by God's deliberate action and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men, Pilate, Herod Antipas, others, teachers of the law. But you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, our greatest king, said about him, and this is a quote, From Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. So he's not talking about himself, Peter says, because he died. He was buried. He remains buried. But he was a prophet who knew that God had promised him on oath. And this was an oath in our Bible study on uh, Friday mornings with the men. We talked about all of the oaths or the covenants sealed by oaths in the Old Testament, starting with the creation covenant and oath. The Noahic covenant and oath, the Abrahamic covenant and oath. The oath that God makes or the promise of the covenant that God makes with the people of Israel through Moses and Aaron. And then finally, in the second chapter of Samuel, chapter, second book of Samuel, chapter seven, God makes this promise or this covenant sealed with an oath to David that his offspring would go on to be kings forever and not only would build a temple, but would reign in a way that went on forever. God's covenant or God's oath with David. 
God has raised this Jesus. Go back to verse 30. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And not only did Jesus receive, but he has also poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, quote from Psalm 110, often quoted in the New Testament, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A way of saying that David, even though he was the greatest king that ever would be, Acknowledge not only God, Father, but also another Lord who was above him. And no one was above him except Jesus. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Both Messiah and Lord. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that they also had received. This promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off, it's for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and Peter pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. God's done all of this. Your only responsibility is to respond. God's done everything. He's paved the way. He's opened the door. He's made a way in Jesus. He's done all of this action in history and in your lives. You're witnesses of it. All you have to do is respond. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves by responding. From this corrupt generation, those who accepted his message were baptized in about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And if that ever happened at First Prayers, we would have a massive amount of cake. A massive, I mean, just the whole patio would be lined with cake in our tradition of having a cake every time a group of people join the church, become part of the congregation, or added to our number by God. So I'm titling my message this morning, The Pentecostal Church. Last week it was the nascent church. This morning it's the Pentecostal Church. But it's the Pentecostal church, not maybe for the reason that you might first of all think, not because indecipherable languages were spoken, because it was, as we've seen here in chapter two of Acts, indecipherable languages were not spoken, but rather foreign languages that could be understood by people that God had drawn there for the festival of weeks from all over the known world. And not because people raise their hands and wave their hands in worship, as some Pentecostal Christians today are known to do, which is fine and wonderful and a beautiful expression of giving devotion or honor or worship to God. But what was happening here in Jerusalem was neither one of those things, as wonderful and good as they may be but rather something altogether different. And so we listen to the text. And from it, we get these things. First, the Pentecostal church was obedient. 
Back near the beginning of chapter 1 of Acts in verses 4 and 5, previous chapter, we read this. On one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. His disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water or in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with or in Holy Spirit, wind, breath, pneuma. And they were obedient in staying in Jerusalem when they could have fled anywhere else that would have been safer, when they could have headed to the woods, headed to the forest, headed to the wilderness, or most likely headed back to Galilee, where they were from, to their comfortable place, to their safe place, to their familiar place. But sometimes what God says is not go, but stay. Sometimes what God says is not go, but stay. And sometimes what God says is not now, but wait. And sometimes that can be very difficult for many of us. To wait, to stay, to listen, to watch, to be what the scriptures call patient. I go to Costco, that's like my, everyone's got their, their store. Whatever it may be, Safeway, Lucky, Trader Joe's, whatever your favorite grocery store is. Mine's Costco, but not because their muffins are great, which they are, or not because their bagels are great, which they are, or not because one gets the sense that one gets a better deal by buying in bulk, which one may or may not do. But the main reason that I go to Costco is you can get in and out of there quick. It doesn't seem like it, but it's because it's a big warehouse. But you can get there, get in, get out quick, fast. The lines might have a few people in them, but they move super fast, super faster than the lines at Safeway. Ugh. <laughs> and so I was at, at Costco this week, and uh, there were three people in front of me, which is a lot for Costco. And among those three people, there was someone who had to go back and take a couple things back and find some bananas that weren't bruised. And there was someone who had to write a check. And there was someone who somehow through their credit card broke the system. <laughs> Shut it down. It was really hard to be patient in that time. But patience sometimes in the scriptures equals obedience. Obedience is patience. And in a variety of ways, the message here was wait, not now, later, trust, follow, look, see. Don't go now. And so the Pentecostal church was obedient, in faith, with faith, trusting God, doing what God said to do, even if it wasn't the thing that made the most sense. Stay right where you're at. Stay in your space. I know I've sent you out before in 12s and 72s. You know that you've got a mission coming. But right now, just, just stay right there. There's something more to come. The Pentecostal church was obedient. Second, the Pentecostal church had supernatural experiences. And not just one and not just two, but a couple are worth noting. The first is the supernatural experience that was transformative for Peter. If we rewind to the book of Luke, volume 1, chapter 22, we see the almost the last mention of Peter before Jesus' resurrection. Verse 54, then seizing them, they, they took Jesus away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. He's not following close. He's not right there. He's not in the mix. He's with an eyesight, but that's it. That's as close as he will now get to Jesus. A woman came up to Peter and said, this man was with him, 
But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, Peter said. A little later, someone else saw Peter and said, you are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another person asserted, certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. But then something happens in Peter, which we can call supernatural and was also transformative. The Pentecostal church had supernatural experiences that were also transformational during Jesus' public ministry, yes, and then also afterward, namely, and most specifically in largely the resurrection of Jesus, but then also this other supernatural and transformative event, this outpouring this roar of the wind, this visitation of tongues of fire, did something to Peter who previously, most previously, was bashful, weak, becomes a whole different person so that he's standing up in front of as many people as can gather and boldly speaking. Francis Chan says the church becomes irrelevant when it becomes purely a human creation. We are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. In much of the church today, and probably for most of our experiences as Christians, and certainly in most of our experiences in the church, everything that we have experienced can be explained by natural, physical, laws of physics means. But in the Pentecostal church, these things continued to happen that had no other explanation besides that which was supernatural and which became in their lives transformational. The Pentecostal church had supernatural experiences. Third, the Pentecostal church was willing to appear foolish. They were willing to appear to be foolish, which no one wants to be, no one wants to do, no one wants to have that happen to us. We all want to look like we know what's going on. We all want to seem to be competent. We all want to impress. More important than being good is looking good in our world. We want our witness to be robust. None of us wants to be taken as a fool, though Paul talks about being fools for Christ. Dallas Willard wrote, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost all, you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. But isn't there some truth in that? We live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. And yet the early disciples didn't doubt. They believed. They'd been transformed. They had seen the supernatural. They had watched Jesus and so were no longer afraid of appearing to be fools or afraid of people looking at them oddly which none of us really enjoy. The Pentecostal church was willing to seem foolish. Fourth, the Pentecostal church was outwardly focused. The word ecclesia, from which we get the English word Greek, uh, the, from which we get the English word church, ecclesia Greek, church English. It's translated in some places as assembly, in some places as gathering, occasionally as church. It literally means to be called out, to be called out, ek, out, 
ecclesia, kaleo, called, called out. The church is called to have an outward focus and not to be a community of people who simply retreat into the walls of a church building as if it's a fortress and then to stay there. You may be familiar with uh, geography and the whole Middle Eastern landscape. The Dead Sea that's between Israel and Jordan is dead because water flows into it and doesn't flow out of it. There's no outflow. Just water and minerals come in and they corrode and they compound and they don't flow out. And the church and Christians are just the same way. If God's spirit flows in but doesn't flow out, it is death. If God's word flows in but doesn't go out, it leads simply to a dead spirit. If we're to be a church for the community, we must be a church that's outward focused, that is called out, ecclesia, beyond these walls. In some ways, these walls do us a disfavor by thinking the action is happening here when God is sending us out, calling us out. Another little illustration from life in Texas, and this one about cow manure. If cow manure stays all together, it's just a pile of poop and begins to stink, reek, be offensive. But if cow manure is spread across a lawn or a garden, it nourishes and fertilizes and brings life, actually. The church is called not to be a club like Costco or a club like your gym or a club like a country club or a club like a health club, though we have this membership thing. But rather, we're supposed to be an outpost where people come to be trained, equipped, empowered, enabled, and then sent out. The Pentecostal church was outwardly focused. And then fifth and finally, the Pentecostal church was inherently resurrection-centric. And maybe that's obvious. It's all been about the resurrection since the end of each of the Gospels and easily into Acts. But notice how often resurrection is the central focus of what Peter talks about, about what Peter preaches, about the basis for all that they are as a new community. It's all about resurrection. The reason Christians meet on Sunday today, because Christians began to meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, from the very earliest times, because Jesus was resurrected. On the first day of the week, Jews, Jesus' followers, his disciples, continue to practice Sabbath from Friday sundown through Saturday sundown as good, faithful Jewish people. But they added to that another gathering on the first morning of the week on Sunday to remember and to be instructed by and to be empowered by the fact and the reality and the transforming power 
of Jesus' resurrection. The church today honestly can be about a lot of things, consciously and unconsciously, outwardly and inwardly, blatantly and covertly, about feeling good, about spiritual growth, which can mean a number of things to different people, about social justice, about exhibiting compassion, about meeting people's needs, about the prosperity gospel, about going to heaven. And most of these things are valid in some ways. But it's important to see, at least in this passage, that the Pentecostal church was incredibly focused on resurrection because in the resurrection they found hope and life and power and reason and sense and justification and proof that everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did wasn't an illusion or a trick or simply human wisdom, but was a window into reality. The kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. All of that was about, was based on, and they took strength in because of Jesus' resurrection. So, the Pentecostal church was obedient. The Pentecostal church, supernatural and transformational experiences. The Pentecostal church was willing to appear foolish. The Pentecostal church was outwardly focused And the Pentecostal church was inherently resurrection-centric. Like what we saw last week in chapter 1 of Acts, this too, these things too, should form and shape our understanding of what it means to be church, about what church is about, and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and a member of his church globally and here. Let's pray. God, make us the kind of church, organizationally, relationally, structurally, in the ways that we relate to each other as a community, as a people, as a family. Make us more and more into a church that reflects your aim and mission for the church and through them, through us. Your aim and hope and dream for the world. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.